This talk is going to be about global transformations of diet. And the reason for talking about global transformations of diet is that obesity has been described by some as being an outcome of population exposure to obesogenic environments, especially in high-income countries, and by others as being something that emerges with modernization in economically emerging nations. The global rise in obesity is linked to the recent dominance of chronic disease over infectious disease in the world. In low-income countries and lower-middle-income countries, this is linked to globalization and the expansion of modernity. The emergence of obesogenic environments across the world has been described as being part of a nutrition transition in which urbanization, westernization, economic change are accompanied by major shifts in diet to lower nutrient density and higher energy density. The nutrition transition model describes the changing patterns of diet and nutritional health that have accompanied various types of economic transformation, from hunting and gathering, through agriculture, to industrialization, urbanization, and to the modern and late modern world. Each of these economic transformations has had significant shifts in diet. Uh, each of them has had health implications because of the, the changes in diet that have accompanied them. So the nutrition transition model overlaps with other transition models, including those of epidemiological and demographic transition. Both of these influence policy thinking and econometric modeling of obesity. The term nutrition transition in public health is used whenever links between newly affluent populations and dietary changes are being discussed. According to Barry Popkin, the inventor of the term nutrition transition, this refers to his pattern four of five patterns of nutrition transition. So the early ones, of course, being hunting, gathering, agriculture, industrialization, urbanization, and so on. Um, and when I'm talking about nutrition transition here, I'm just going to be referring directly to pattern four nutrition transition, the one in the, the latest shift in diet which is coming with uh, with modernization and industrialization and post-industrialization. Some of the major dietary shifts associated with pattern for nutrition transition include falling food prices, rapid urbanization, new and improved marketing and distribution infrastructure, improved roads and ports, improved access to foreign suppliers and food imports, and the globalization of food consumption patterns. When you look around you, you will all be able to identify um, what these things are. You can identify them in, the, uh, in your local food system. These changes have resulted in a shift towards higher food energy supplies, as well as greater consumption of fats and oils and more animal-based foodstuffs. The global food system is an expert system and it's dominated by very large corporations. Um, they dominate the production, manufacture, distribution and sale of food. Their profitability is linked to their increasingly global presence, there being a positive relationship between the annual retail revenue of the largest food corporations and the number of countries that they operate in. At the population level, Temporal shifts in food consumption patterns have different biological effects at different stages of the life course. According to developmental life course science, the later in life they come, the less likely they will result in obesity.
A number of countries entered pattern four of nutrition transition in the 1980s. When we look at China, it happened after the major economic transformation of 1985. In Mexico, the population shift to increase consumption of diets of higher fat and refined carbohydrate content took place between 1988 and 1999. Brazil, on the other hand, entered pattern for nutrition transition between 1974 and 1989. The timing of pattern for nutrition transition within any country might condition the extent to which postnatal nutrition contributes to present-day obesity rates. As an example, a 50-year-old person in China might have experienced lower birth birth weight, poor nutrition in the first 20 years of life, followed by 30 years of improved nutrition. A 40-year-old in China in 2015 might have experienced low birth weight, 10 years of poorer nutrition in childhood, followed by 30 years of improved nutrition. A 30-year-old in the same year that we look at them is more likely to have experienced good nutrition or overnutrition across their entire life. Despite their ages only being 10 years apart, these three hypothetical Chinese individuals would have different predispositions to obesity based on their earlier life history and nutritional experience in relation to their timing of entry into pattern for nutrition transition. In relation to obesity, pattern 4 nutrition transition is incomplete without being related to early life or developmental origins models of of obesity. That is, early life matters for the production of obesity. The most important of these developmental life course periods related to obesity are early, especially in fetal growth and in infant development soon after birth. At both times of life, nutritional predispositions to later-life obesity operate through developmental plasticity and epigenetics. Being born before pattern 4 nutrition transition, then experiencing greater availability of dietary energy subsequently, has profound implications for population obesity rates. Low birth weight and subsequent catch-up growth are associated with hypertension, type 2 diabetes and obesity in later life, as a consequence of persisting physiological and metabolic changes that accompany slow growth in utero and accompany compensatory growth in early postnatal life, catch-up growth, some call it. So this talk examines the relationships between population obesity and models of pattern for nutrition transition as experienced at early stages of the life course and then considers how models of developmental plasticity and epigenetics might be related to nutrition transition models in helping to shape globally complex patterns of obesity. To be able to understand this, though, it's first important to understand what pattern for nutrition transition is since it structures the political ecology of obesity. So I'm going to turn to this next. Nutrition transition and obesity. So pattern four of nutrition transition usually involves shifts away from plant-based diets towards higher per capita consumption of animal-based foods, oils and fats, processed sugars and processed carbohydrates. Dietary energy availability has increased in all global regions of the world in the past 50 years or so, but to a greater extent in upper-middle-income countries. 
um, also in lower middle income countries and low income countries than in high income countries. There's been some convergence in daily per capita calorie availability in all regions of the world apart from South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. The regions with the highest daily energy availability per capita over the longest periods since the 1960s, Europe, North and Central America, have subsequently developed the highest obesity rates. This supports at macro level um, the view that time depth and cross-sectional factors, cross-generational factors rather, are important in the production of population obesity. Populations in the Near East, East, in North Africa, in Latin America and the Caribbean, have the next highest rates of obesity, among the highest rates of increase in obesity rates since the 1980s, and among the greatest increase in per capita dietary energy availability between the 1960s and the 1980s. Cereals contribute most to dietary energy availability, per capita availability, uh, increasing slightly to the late 2000s. The per capita daily availability of sugars, fats, meat have all increased steadily across the second half of the 20th century and beyond. The increases have been most striking in fat and meat availability, meat of which has been more than, has more than doubled, meat consumption has more than doubled. Among high income countries and increasingly among upper middle income countries, national food supplies have become more plentiful and diverse broadly enhancing food security to all but those living in poverty. Globally, total energy availability per capita increased by 30% between 1961 and 2011, with energy availability from carbohydrate increasing by 22%. Populations around the world now obtain, on average, 57% of their daily energy intake from carbohydrate, with intake from sugar being around 7% of total energy availability. These are big proportions. As rates of obesity in most countries have increased, so too have rates of type 2 diabetes. These are brought about by the hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance from high levels of consumption of refined carbohydrates across many years, superimposed on physiological development, epigenetic and genetic predispositions. So a whole set of things that are set up with, with um, nutrition transition, consuming more carbohydrate, uh, a life course that is, um, uh, is uh, predisposition to diabetes and obesity being determined in early life from, from low birth weight. So a set, of, uh, a set of toxic relationships, if you will. Pattern for nutrition transition is one outcome of recent globalization, a process which has resulted in increased mobility of goods, services, labor, technology, and capital throughout the world. Globalization has accelerated in recent decades as economic integration and deregulation of trade and flows of capital have increased among the vast majority of nations. Integration took place faster and earlier in some countries and regions than others. And the countries that engaged in this process earliest saw their average economic output increase almost threefold since the 1970s. Integration of trade has greatly contributed to economic growth, and globalization has enhanced the economies of many countries. However, the worldwide proliferation of transnational corporations, transnational food companies among them, that has accompanied globalization 
may have played a key role in influencing rising rates of obesity, especially through the marketing and sale of ultra-processed foods, of soft drinks and fast food from this time onwards. Global economic integration and the deregulation of trade and of flows of capital provided the conditions for this to happen. The greatest increases in obesity rates are in the world's regions that have experienced the greatest extent and longest period of economic integration and trade liberalization. The wealthy North American subregion and the Central Latin American subregion have the highest rates and rates of increasing obesity among large nations now. The North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, it's been abbreviated to, was brought into operation in 1994. And this eliminated nearly all barriers to trade and investment between the United States, Canada and Mexico within a decade of its initiation. NAFTA opened the door to food commodities, including prepared foods, usually of high energy density, from the United States to Mexico, at a time when Mexico was unable to meet demand for food from its own production. Across the period of trade liberalization, between 1988 and 1999, the contribution of fat to per capita energy availability in Mexico increased from 23% to 30%, as the purchase of ultra-processed foods, which are high in refined carbohydrates and sugar, increased. At the same time, the purchase of more nutrient-rich foods, such as fruit and vegetables, and milk and dairy products declined. Both changes contributed significantly to the rapid increases in rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes there. Mexico has experienced a threefold increase in mortality from type 2 diabetes between 1990 and 2010, making it the dominant disease issue there, as the principal cause of death in women and the second most common cause of death among men since the year 2000. In Western Europe, Obesity rates have risen steadily since the expansion of financial integration in the mid-1980s, while in Eastern Europe they remained relatively constant until the 2000s when they accelerated. The difference in patterns of obesity between Western and Eastern Europe reflect one of the major events in 20th century history, the collapse of Soviet-styled communism. Eastern European countries were part of the Soviet bloc until 1990, but undertook financial integration with the rest of the world rapidly after independence. The financial integration of the Eastern European countries had an important influence on the production of obesity in those countries, due largely, but not solely, to changing diets and increased energy availability, dietary energy availability. Other contributors to the increased obesity rates in Eastern Europe after the transition from communism to free market economics include general declines in physical activity levels, increased real income, and increased economic inequality. With respect to physical activity, political liberalization meant a relaxation of the fitness norms and expectations of the communist state. Data from the International Health and Behaviour Survey carried out among university students in 23 countries between 1999 and 2001 shows female youth in Eastern European countries to be much less physically active than their counterparts in Western European and North American nations. Most East European nations experienced a decline in real gross domestic product, GDP, after the collapse of communism, but this rebounded in the 2000s. 
For females who had much higher rates of obesity than men prior to the collapse of communism, obesity showed little decline with economic decline, largely because the cheapest foods available were energy-dense and because physical activities also, levels also declined. Open markets in Eastern Europe also increased the exposure of women to Western ideals of beauty and body thinness through the media. Such exposure was much greater in urban than in rural areas, and this might have contributed, contributed to increased urban-rural inequalities and obesity rates among women in Eastern European countries after the collapse of communism. The transition from communism to free market economic systems favoured the wealthier nations of Eastern Europe, Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, with greater dietary energy availability than the poorer ones. Although the rise in obesity rates in the Eastern European countries is associated with greater gross domestic product, it's also associated with increased income inequality since the collapse of communism. Economic inequality increased sharply in the Eastern European nations after 1990, soon after the end of communist rule. It continued to increase into the 2000s, fluctuating thereafter at higher levels than before 1990, with much greater between-nation variation in income inequality than when under communist rule. In contrast to Eastern Europe, Western Europe has experienced a steady rise in obesity rates associated with both economic inequality and increased insecurity, again from the mid-1980s. Although globalization and the integration of trade have enhanced the economies of many countries, they've also generated imbalances of wealth and power between rich and poor countries, and have contributed to global increases in obesity rates. An analysis of the effects of economic globalization on population-level obesity body mass index, used as the measure, of adults, using aggregate data from 127 countries, confirms this effect after adjustment for gross domestic product per capita, adjusting for urbanization and adjusting for population size in both longitudinal cross-sectional panel data analyses and in time series analyses. So it's, it's a robust um, a, a robust set of analyses that confirm um, the fact that uh, um, that uh, inequalities, globalization has increased uh, obesity rates. The mechanisms that connect economic globalization, inequality between countries and BMI remain unknown. But it might be that the liberalization of capital and trade might have facilitated the rise in obesity rates by promoting the growth of transnational corporations and their greater mobility across borders, especially of transnational food corporations. Only a minority of such corporations have a commitment to health improvement, or, in the case of transnational food companies, in mitigating the possible risk of obesity from, com from consumption of their products. Economic rationality largely underpins the processes that I've just described, with global acceptance by governments of economic growth as a measure of progress. This yardstick of progress can be challenged, however. Human desires exist beyond the pursuit of profit, and the extent to which money can buy happiness is limited. Measures of societal progress have been developed that include social and environmental factors. This is called the Genuine Progress Indicator. It's a measure that incorporates both social and environmental factors. 
The GPI, General Progress Indicator, is a measure of gross domestic product, that is value of all goods and services produced, less or minus the environmental and social costs of attaining that level of GDP. These costs include the environmental and social costs of economic development. It's an economic measure that takes account of some of the negative aspects of economic growth, that is, environmental degradation, this remains controversial, inequality, and unhappiness. The genuine progress indicator incorporates income inequality and stress-related insecurity due to unemployment, changes in family structure, and loss of leisure time. All of these are factors that are associated with obesity. The global rise in adult obesity rates since 1980 is positively associated with increasing gross domestic product and globalization. However, it's also associated with declining genuine declines in the general progress indicator, which supports the view that the negative aspects of economic growth, especially inequality and insecurity, are important in the production of population obesity. Nutrition transition theory describes changing patterns of food availability and nutritional disorder associated with economic transformation. The systems that drive pattern for nutrition transition are underpinned by economic and formal rationalities involving large bureaucracies, technical orientations to problem solving, and an orientation to economic approaches in government and business. But in everyday life, pattern for nutrition transition is negotiated by people using practical and substantive rationalities. Human engagement with food, including its purchase, consumption, and negotiation of its social and symbolic value, involves substantive rationality, especially when food is thought of as something being something more than just fuel. Described in terms of competing cultural and social norms within and across societies by Deborah Lupton and John Coveney and others, the competition for people's attention between international foods and traditional foods in pattern for nutrition transition can also be seen as involving conflicting and competing rationalities. Let's turn to Mexico again as an, as an example. Here, the economic and formal rationalities that naturalize economic growth as desirable also legitimize the sale and consumption of high-energy-dense foods and sugar-sweetened beverages as being modern and therefore formally rational, as modern, formally rational forms of consumption. The substantive rationality that draws on traditional forms with respect to food in Mexico can easily be thought of as being sentimental and to be ignored by authorities because it impedes modernization. We can contrast this, however, with, with a couple of very modern countries, Italy and Austria. In these two countries, Italy and Austria, the formal rationality of governments and corporations is challenged by substantive rationalities of trust in discourses about food and other aspects of everyday life. That is, don't just swallow the modernization agenda whole, whole meal um, you, uh, you, you challenge the things that really don't fit in with, um, with uh, cultural norms and practices. Pattern for nutrition transition is global and cross-generational. It often invokes clashes of rationalities at the local level through considerations of what foods are appropriate for which circumstances, including diet and pregnancy and lactation, foods for infants and young children, and types of meal. 
Some of the biological factors that influence the development of obesity are also cross-generational and include developmental programming and child growth. The science of epigenetics models gene expression as being both biologically and environmentally heritable and as possibly influencing future rates of obesity. So what I'm going to turn now to now uh, will be a consideration of relationships between the nutritional changes that accompany modernization and globalization and the developmental programming and epigenetic factors that can influence the onset and progression of obesity. So, to try to bundle together life history, life course, developmental programming, epigenetics with obesity, uh, the place I turn to is a place that many uh, scholars have turned to, the natural experiment, the horrific natural experiment that was created by the Dutch famine winter of 1944-1945. Um, survivors from this famine are still being followed up, and they've allowed the transgenerational, transgenerational effects on the causation of obesity to be examined in detail, transgenerational effects with respect to a whole range of chronic diseases as well, but I'm just going to focus on obesity. Follow-up of offspring from mothers exposed to this famine by epidemiological scientists has shown fetal starvation in early pregnancy to be associated with higher rates of obesity in later life. Epigenetic effects on growth, metabolic disease, and obesity predisposition were found in the same individuals who experienced this famine, offering some physiological mechanism for these mechanisms, for these relationships, rather. DNA methylation and demethylation are among several related mechanisms by which genes are regulated epigenetically, and such regulation has been identified as being related to subsequent obesity in this group persisting into the next generation in males, but not in females. The observation that late-onset chronic disease is programmed by transit rather than long-term early life experiences has led to the speculation that developmental programming may actually have an epigenetic component. Two evolutionary models can place these observations in broader ecological context. The first of these, using the life course perspective developed by Eric Charnoff and many others, views early life cues as inducing highly integrated responses in traits associated with energy partitioning, maturation and reproduction, such that the individual phenotype is better adapted to the environment that is anticipated to exist across the rest of life. For example... Maternal and or neonatally derived nutritional or endocrine cues signaling a threatening environment might favor early growth and reproduction over investment in tissue reserve and repair capacity. Such a response prioritizes insulin resistance and capacity for fat storage for more immediate survival, both of which increase susceptibility to metabolic dysfunction and obesity in later life, um, and neither of which are usually expressed if the nutritional ecology is and remains energy limited. For the fetus, responses to environmental stresses include developmental adaptations that maximize immediate chances for survival. These adaptations may include re resetting metabolic homeostasis and or endocrine systems and down-regulating physical growth and development. 
While these changes in fetal physiology might be beneficial for short-term survival in utero, they might also be maladaptive in postnatal life, contributing to poor health outcomes when offspring experience catch-up growth, diet-induced obesity, and other ecological changes associated with modernization. In this sense, developmental programming of adult health and disease can be considered to be part of the broader life course framing rather than being an independent phenomenon. That's the first evolutionary model. The second evolutionary model is that of the predictive adaptive response, put forward by Peter Gluckman and Mark Hansen in New Zealand. The predictive adaptive response model views fetal physiological and developmental responses to mismatches between pre- and postnatal environments as being adaptive preparation for their breeding or mature environment. For humans living in transitional ecologies, as, for example, those people living, uh, entering pattern for nutrition transition, developmental adjustments are major determinants of subsequent chronic disease. Developmental adjustments to adverse environments in utero may be associated with epigenetic processes, either reversible ones or irreversible ones. Epigenetics and developmental plasticity are both evolutionarily rational, inasmuch as parental effects on reproductive fitness can operate through context-dependent transgenerational transmission of adaptive phenotypes. Although the initial focus of developmental programming of adult health and disease research was on the effects of maternal undernutrition, restricted fetal growth and low birth weight, the issue of maternal and fetal overnutrition has gained prominence more recently in the context of global obesity. With pattern 4 nutrition transition, developmental plasticity might be maladaptive in populations that are moving from high to low mortality due to extrinsic factors like infectious disease and from low to high energy density diets and caloric plenty with increased potential for longevity and susceptibility to metabolic disease. In the early 2000s, the idea that prenatal overnutrition might affect lifelong risk of obesity was used to explain relationships between obese mothers, fat babies, and the transmission of obesity across generations, invoking epigenetic mechanisms. Epigenetics involves the regulation of gene expression by environmental factors, which include nutrition, and much of the missing heritability in genetic explanations of obesity could be due to epigenetic silencing of obesity susceptibility genes. According to Robert Furrow and his colleagues, variations in epigenetic and environmental states can give highly heritable phenotypes through a combination of epigenetic and environmental inheritance. In combination, these two inheritance processes can produce higher familial coherences than can purely epigenetic inheritance, and similar covariances to those due to genetics alone. Over a hundred differentially methylated sites at birth are known to be associated with obesity phenotypes in later life. It was initially thought by epigenetic scientists that the increasing prevalence of obesity in women of reproductive age might create transgenerational amplification of obesity with metabolic consequences in subsequent generation. This idea was further developed in relation to the role of obesity on fertility. 
intergenerational tracking of high maternal body weight and increased risk of metabolic disease and perturbed reproductive functioning in grown-up offspring. Pregnancy and birth weight are central to the development of predispositions to obesity, while low birth weight is associated with obesity in subsequent life in transitional environments. Birth is a period of high mortality, maternal infant mortality. Across societies, infant mortality varies in a J-shaped manner with birth weight, although the exact relationship differs across populations and across time. The relationship between neonatal mortality and birth weight is robust even with large mortality rate, mortality rate declines. This has been clearly demonstrated for the United States population between 1950 and 1998. Low birth weight thus persists in populations that experience modernization, as does the attendant risk of low birth weight-related obesity. The effects of low birth weight often persist into infancy and are associated with slow growth, small body size and increased mortality, especially in low-income countries and low-middle-income countries. These postnatal effects are reversed in pattern for nutrition transition in many populations, with greater likelihood of increased obesity rates. Convergence of scientific research on developmental programming, epigenetics and the life course has taken place in the last decade or so, with attempts to understand how the former two sets of biological processes are, stru- are structured by the, by, the, uh, by the latter, but also revealing the biocultural complexity of transgenerational transgener- obesity production. Adverse prenatal and early postnatal environments can increase the likelihood of becoming obese in later life, with pregnancy and lactation influencing these outcomes. Pregnancy is a critical period for the establishment of the fetal epigenome, while epigenetic programming is especially active from birth to childhood. In addition, the developmental programming associated with living in adverse early life environments may be epigenetically regulated. Pregnancy, lactation and early childhood growth are under intense social and cultural control and are also likely to influence epigenetic regulation. In turn, there is social epigenetic control of adipose tissue development. For example, exercise, diet and weight loss surgery each have been shown to alter DNA methylation profiles in different tissue types. In addition, DNA methylation in adipose tissue can change after exercise and differs between high and low responders to weight loss interventions. Epigenetic profiling of obese people before and after weight loss surgery shows DNA methylation profiles to become more similar to those of individuals that are lean following surgery, indicating that the epigenome of obese individuals can be modified by reductions in body weight or fat mass. Beyond pregnancy and infancy, other life course factors implicated in the production of obesity include variable patterns of growth and development in childhood and adolescence according to environmental circumstances, and the secular trend towards increased body size across generations, a measure that's usually taken as a marker of improved diet, quality, and nutritional well-being. I'm now going to turn to physiological plasticity and obesity. Because this is evolutionarily important and there seems to be some subversion of what is seen as being adapted to something that is not being adapted further to the two evolutionary models that were um, developed uh, a little bit earlier.
There are different stresses that influence human growth and morphology at various stages of life and across generations, and there are many pathways to obesity. Humans have an extended period of biological immaturity relative to other mammalian species, and this evolved phenotype is associated with high ecological sensitivity and growth plasticity. Ecological sensitivity is manifest in the processes of stunting and wasting in response to poor nutrition and infection in low-income countries, while growth plasticity is especially demonstrated in the catch-up growth that takes place during periods of environmental improvement following episodes of stress, whether they be nutritional or otherwise. Both dietary quantity and dietary quality can influence growth and body composition in later childhood, as can infant feeding patterns. Body fatness usually reaches its lowest level post-infancy between the ages of five and seven years, followed by increased body fatness, a a phenomenon that's been termed adiposity rebound by Marie-Francoise Roland Cacherat and her colleagues in France. Early adiposity rebound has been associated with increased relative weight and obesity later in life, including during adolescence. In the United States, for example, low levels of vigorous physical activity and high levels of television viewing have been associated with greater body fatness in children during the adiposity rebound period. Catch-up growth is an acceleration of child growth rate following either medical or environmental intervention or ecological improvement such that body size approaches or reaches a normality relative to growth references. It can take place at all stages of child growth, including adolescence. Early growth restriction followed by catch-up growth is associated with the development of abdominal obesity, while higher growth velocity in early childhood prior to adiposity rebound has been associated with greater fatness and obesity in subsequent years. In addition, low birth weight and catch-up growth together predisposed to the development of excess body fatness at all stages of life. The term secular trend is used to describe marked changes in growth and development of successive generations of human populations. Um, If you are taller than your mother and father and the population in general, your mates are are taller than than, than, than their parents, that's indicative of a positive secular trend, that one generation is generally taller than the next. That's a positive secular trend. This positive secular trend of increased stature and weight, earlier timing of adolescent growth spurt, have been uh, documented for many populations. Negative secular trends, on the other hand, have been identified in some populations in low-income countries and lower-middle-income countries. Positive secular trends are far more common and have been largely attributed to improved social, political, nutritional and health conditions. Mean heights and weights of adults have increased in most high-income countries since the mid-19th century, but while increases in height have slowed in the late 20th century and reached a plateau in some European countries, Adult obesity rates have only carried on, have only risen, have only carried on increasing. The rate of secular increase in stature among many modernizing populations in Asia since about 1960 has been almost double that of European populations. 
In China, the economic reforms of 1978, which were aimed at opening the socialist economy to free markets, led to a very dramatic increase in stature, as well as subsequent increase in obesity rates with pattern for nutrition transition. It takes several generations for maximal population stature to be achieved. Six, by Child Growth and Development Standards Specialist Tim Cole's estimation, and the emergence of global obesity in the past two generations might include developmental programming and epigenetic effects that go back to the origins of the secular trend and timing of pattern for nutrition transition in any population. The secular trend may in turn be associated with both improved nutrition and a reduction, and, and a reduction in infectious disease mortality in early life. The lower rates of obesity in high- and upper-middle-income Asian countries could reflect the more recent and faster secular trends in those countries, as well as their more recent entry into pattern for nutrition transition. Associations between stature and socioeconomic status are similar in most populations, height correlating positively with wealth. Weight, however, varies socially and culturally in its relationship with wealth, Overweight and obesity being more usually associated with low socioeconomic status in most high-income countries, and initially associated with high socioeconomic status in nations entering pattern for nutrition transition. Growth stunting in association with overweight, now found in many places, was first identified in Peruvian children and more recently in children in four nations viewed to be undergoing pattern for nutrition transition. Russia, Brazil, South Africa, and China. This population phenomenon may be due to very rapid onset of pattern for nutrition transition, which leads to obesity within a generation, but to greater stature increased height across several generations. Constant environmental perturbation was the ecological norm for most past populations and included seasonality and uncertainty in food supply. Human physiology is very responsive to such perturbations, allowing reproductive success and survival under difficult circumstances, and to increased body size and the accumulation of fat when conditions allow for future survivorship. It's precisely this set of adaptive features that is expressed in pattern for nutrition transition, contributing to the rapid rise of obesity rates in economically emerging countries. So... That's covered quite a bit of ground, and I'm going to attempt to summarize some of these things. So in summary, the implications of pattern for nutrition transition and developmental programming for obesity and its regulation are long-term and transgenerational, I hope. That's something I've demonstrated in this talk. How to regulate this is another matter. How can policy deal with early life predispositions to obesity? It's a complex matter. For policymakers, make sense of this. The past matters in that history sets precedents and naturalizes cultures of politics and population behavior. With respect to food, this plays out in ideas of tradition. For example, the British diet, French cuisine, Italian and French regional food, and American fast food, for example. Other types of history are important as well. Maternal and grand maternal histories shape present-day disease risk 
and policy focused on maternal health and child-centered social investment, as promoted in the Scandinavian countries, should help reduce the legacy of obesity and chronic disease created by past political, economic and social environments. According to Yoshizawa, the hypothesis that developmental programming alters predispositions to chronic disease in adult life does not support solely reductionist biophysical paradigms of health and disease, but rather it invokes complex understandings that, that span biology, social positionality, place and generation. Thank you.